This episode was co-produced by Holy Code, your go-to partner for all software development needs. From proof of concept to highly complex software, to building nearshore teams or delivering the optimal ERP solution, Holy Code is what you need. They're experts in startup development and have helped many of our former guests supercharge their technology and make the world a better place, one line of code at a time. So if you're looking for support with scaling your tech product, head over to holycode.com and get started today. That's H-O-L-Y-C-O-D-E dot com. I think the trust is something as an individual, even more than as a company, because as an early startup founder, it's not the company they trust, it's the you that they trust. You have to be extremely optimistic and you have to show a vision. You have to yourself then also live up to what you communicate. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Ansuya. Well, welcome, Judith, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Ansuya. <laughs> So I'm quite excited to do this episode. Um, I'm always uh, very interested to talk to founders who are working on uh, clean climate tech related solutions. And yours is a very interesting one. It's been around for a while. Um, and let's just dive into it. Yes, let's go ahead. So Judith is the co-founder and COO at Urban Connect, a multimodal sustainable mobility platform for companies offering an ecosystem of low emission shared vehicles. Judith, um, you have a very interesting uh, background with your family as well. Uh, your father was the headmaster um, at a school in the countryside in Switzerland. Uh, your mother, the housewife, she also studied teaching and then you were as well teaching during your high school years uh, at the summertime. Uh, but then you decided to uh, study acting uh, for three years. And then later, uh, you did a bachelor's in economics. So this is a very unusual uh, path, uh, a very nonlinear path. Mm -hmm. um, so walk us a bit like what motivated you to the decision of acting, first of all, and then switching to economics after that. Yeah, it's a very good question. And uh, it's indeed very unlinear. Um, it always stressed me when I was a little bit younger, because I thought you have to have this very clear and somewhat obvious path when you decide on your career but in the looking back it's actually been quite helpful to have different experiences and yeah my parents were both teachers that's right and I used to like even when I was a kid I taught like my brothers or my neighbor kids as a teacher I always like to kind of like bundle a couple of people and share insights and also kind of like see how people mm -hmm. um, are stronger in in a field or, or like learn something and I think that kind of carried me also through doing uh, substitute teaching during my high school, although I did it mainly for the money, to be honest, yeah. like it's very well paid. And when you're in high school, it's a really good salary um, per hour. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy that. And what maybe the, the acting thing, what led me to that is I always danced ballet as a kid and I really wow. like to perform like something in front of someone, like having like being able to express with your body yeah. um, in front of a, of a story, in front of, of an audience. I grew up without a television. So for me, the cinema and movies was always like a 
not a not a forbidden fruit, but a very rare fruit. And I think that's what drove me very much towards acting. I always wanted to tell stories through movies and also ha I, I maybe romanticized it a little yeah. bit. I was like thinking that you have all those experiences that the per people in the movies have, but mm -hmm. it's not really the case. But that led me to studying acting right after high school. Okay. And like soon after starting to study, I realized that this is not really the industry I want to be in. And also I wasn't like the best actress around. There are so many very talented ones and I like to do it, but I felt that was going to be way too competitive. Um, yeah. And then I studied right actually after studying um, acting, I went to the University of Zurich and studied economics mm -hmm. um, because I really liked math since I was a kid. And I felt like that's certainly something where I have a job afterwards, <laughs> not like with the acting where you'd never had a job. Um, And also, I, I felt it helped me to understand the world better. And then during, like during my studies in economics, I co-founded a company already. And I think right. it was kind of, wasn't planned as well. It, I didn't start at university with the plan to, to found a company, but it kind of happened. And again, the university, like, like with the acting degree, yeah. I think the economics degree very much helped me during my path as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so what motivated you? Because this is, again, a, a new shift, right? Like in, in the middle of your studies during a bachelor's 2013, uh, you founded Urban Connect. Uh, so what what was the maybe a series of incidents or an incident or what led you to to say that, okay, I want to do a business of my own? Well, when you look back, there was always a little bit of like hints in my like earlier years I always like to sell stuff for example or like improve stuff mm -hmm. um, and and I always like look at how things work and maybe how you can make it more efficient or or organize it better um, so that that is something that has always motivated me I've never like been drawn to doing a job where I'm just fulfilling what has been defined before and I'm doing it really well but there's no innovative part around my work so that's probably what already like early on was something that I felt I'm drawn to. And then it was more coincidental than a plan. As I said before, it like my my co-founder now, and he's also my husband at the time, he was my mm -hmm. boyfriend. He worked at the big bank in Switzerland and they had a shared e-bike fleet that they offered to their employees, but they okay. managed it all manually. And again, like em employees loved it. It was a really cool offering but it was very like very chaotically organized within mm -hmm. the bank. And so it became really expensive to them. They stopped the pilot. And that's probably where we started to think like, wow, that's actually makes a lot of sense for clients or for companies to have that, but not organized in-house, but really out like outsourced. Yeah. And, and I mean, there were other stories like ideas going around in our heads, but then we really like understood that the market potential is quite big for e-bikes for companies. And in the States, it was already a thing. Right. Um, and we thought, like, let's give it a shot. And for me, it was certainly more interesting than doing an internship in a big corporate where you do like something small on, a, on the on the big wheel of the company. I was like, well, in, in a startup, you learn a lot yeah. fast. So let's take that risk. And then at the beginning, it was more for my husband. It was a side project next to his actual job. And I, I had it as a side project next to my studies, although I, I put quite some energy in it. Um, but for the first couple of years, it was more like a project thing. We had kids in the meantime. Um, but then to, like we, our first client was Google already very early on in 2014. And they came to us in 2017, 18. And they said, look, 
we really like your service. We love working with you, but you have to become more intelligent. Like yeah. there, there was no software to our bikes. And that's the moment where we said, okay, if we do a software, we, we have to do an investment. Um, we cannot just keep it as yeah. a side project. And so 2018 is really where we decided to go, f like, okay. say, like, let's pull all the horse or like all the bet on, on, on that company. And that's when I also had finished already my studies. Our kids were a bit older. Um, and then, yeah, we gave full gas. Wow. So that's a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> I mean, firstly, I would like to comment that I think having a lot of that creativity that you brought in with, with your dance and acting as well as the analytical mind from the economics and math really kind of played in well together, it yeah. seems, uh, you know, because uh, Urban Connect is doing so well. So let's go back to talking about your husband, who is also the co-founder, Robert Rootman. Mm -hmm. uh, so how did like this idea come it, it was as you mentioned from his workplace right that they were seeing this problem exactly there. that's where we saw the problem yeah. and um yeah we were privately involved it was not like i wasn't looking for a co-founder or something like that right. it was more like we co-founded um because we both really thought that's an exciting idea and mm -hmm. an exciting also opportunity to test something we didn't have kids at the time, so we were also quite open for risk. I mean, we're still rather open for risks, right. um, but I think at the time we really didn't have much to lose as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, we both saw the market potential as well. We realized, I think we saw a study at the time, it was 2013. Yeah. No, it wasn't for Zurich, it was a global study. By 2020, 80% uh, of, of, of people on earth will be living in cities, in urban areas. And we were like, well, if that's... They cannot all travel by cars. They right. cannot, especially not to work in the mornings and the evenings. And we had those e-bike or like my husband had this e-bike from Credit Suisse at the time. And so we were like, well, that's, it just makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And why is no one doing this? And we looked at existing models in the States, similar models of what we did at the time. And it was, it really felt like, well, there's such a big opportunity. Let's just give it a shot. And yeah, that's how we started. And how did you guys uh, juggle this in terms of like when we have guests here who are both uh, privately partners as well as working together, how do you kind of separate work life and personal life? Because maybe it just overlaps <laughs> also it, it at home. It does overlap, yeah. yeah. It's a, I mean, then on LinkedIn, people say how fantastic everything is and, yeah. and how everything is. I've once been at the conference where the, there was also a couple and they were like, just like, they don't like anything more than waking up with one another and looking into their eyes and then going into their, like being full energy for their venture. And I mean, it's not as romantic with us. Like it's more, yeah. more, much more messy. Okay. Um, and what we learned is like, I think it's really good to have a common vision, both for the mm -hmm. family or like as a couple, but also for the company, if you kind of know why you're doing it and, and where you're going, mm -hmm. because then you have much more like alignment within the company, but also the relationship. Um, I think the kids helped us quite a bit to just also be able to turn off the work part. Yeah. Because when you're with the kids, there's not much room in your brain that can also think about work. So when we, and we also learned over time, look, when we're with the kids, which is in the mornings and yeah. in the evenings before they sleep and at weekends, we try not to talk right. about work. And they need your full undivided Exa attention. Yeah. And so. we also, we wanted the kids. Yeah. Like we, I really enjoyed spending time with them and being like, uh, like how do you say in English it's like silly like right. I don't want to be professional with exactly. them and, and so we're we're very like private with them it's like we're a family and we're not a business during right. this time where we're with the kids and I think that really helped us although it's still not perfect of course there mm -hmm. are calls on the yeah. weekend sometimes 
But I think that helped us to structure it very clearly into private and work. Um, and, and you mentioned yeah. you have three three yeah, kids, right? Three so kids, yeah. uh, that is also another, uh, you know, another big thing for you uh, to handle. So how do you and your husband manage that, having three children and this yeah. big business? Yeah, I think that could maybe be helpful for other entrepreneurs, especially women. I think yeah. for them, it's more of a topic that they think about even before they have kids. And, and I think if you're open to, like, there's this African proverb that it needs a village to raise a kind. Yes. If you're open to share your kid to some degree with that village, I think there are certainly ways. Like if you yes. want to be like my mom, was, as you said, is was a stay-at-home mom. If I want, if I would take her as a as my role model, of that's how the kind of mother I want to be. I could only fail. But yeah. I also made the conscious decision to say, look, I actually want to also build something on the side and still be a good mom. Mm -hmm. But I very early on took help from outside, like. When there was babies, we put them to daycare, yes. not not to, not 100% of the time, but quite often. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of friends without babies at the time. So they, they a lot of my friends and also my brothers, actually, yeah. my grandma, they came over to our place, had sleepovers sometimes where they really took care of the family wow. and of the kids as well. That is so generous. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were yeah. like, that's also like, I think. You can do the best that you can, but also there's, a, in our case, there was so much luck mm -hmm. um, supporting, like the fact that my grandma was still fit enough, the fact that my mom came to support so yeah. often. Um, also, the fact that our kids were sick almost no, never. Wow. Like they were, they're very like, we, we let them play in the mud enough, maybe. So yes, they had a, a good Im like immune system. <laughs> you really need to, to yeah. do that as well. Yeah. And not overprotect. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and they were just used from a, early age that there are other people that mm -hmm. we trust like I think whenever they feel we trust the people they trust the people quite a bit as well and yeah. so we were like early on getting them used to also be with others but also we were with them quite often if I now compare with my friends that have kids now yeah. and they have a full-time job in a corporate I do think sometimes we have more time with our kids actually because we can also by now with the company being bitter mm -hmm. we can prioritize or like we can plan our schedule around their schedule more than maybe you're able to when you're in a corporate wow yeah. i mean great role model then and not just from a founder perspective but also on how you're managing a family life so yeah. thanks for sharing uh, so these days uh, robert is the ceo mm -hmm. and, and since your series a round last year so congratulations on that and we'll Thank talk you. about that more later mm -hmm. um up until then uh, you were the ceo so it's what been nearly like a decade. Um, so what prompted this change? And if you could explain a bit, like what are the roles and responsibilities for each of you? Yeah, I mean, the change was mostly prompted by us during the Series A, actually looking at our responsibilities because we kind of grew into doing certain things in our everyday life. Um, Robert only joined Urban Connect 2020 full time. Okay. Um, and it, he started in sales mainly, but as a founder, of course, he was very much involved with investors, very much with partnerships. Mm -hmm. And because I was like, I, I know the company from when I was alone and yeah. from the, having the first interns and, and like basically I know every part of the company quite well. And so it was like a natural development that I was like very much responsible for the company and making sure it is run well, making sure... Um, yeah, all the processes work mm -hmm. fine and, and knowing what's going on everywhere. And Robert more more had this like 
a little bit more towards external stakeholders like sales, but also investors. And it was more kind of like we looked at what we are actually doing and we thought like, actually, it's more like he's he's doing this CEO, like the classical CEO task. And I'm more involved in this like general management tasks. Right. And that's why we then said, like, let's just put the name to the reality. Um, at the same time, I think I still do like doing this this podcast now. I still do quite a bit of mm-hmm. founder stuff, not just um, COO things. Right. Uh, and and Robert also is still very much involved in in everyday processes. We are also only thirty people. It's not like we're like right. the CEO is only in board meetings, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's basically you share responsibilities, but then you have uh, clearly, you know, that this person is doing that and you're doing yeah. that. So the yeah. titles are are pretty much a little bit fu- fuzzy. At, it at also helps point. towards outside more than yeah. and. Uh, I think we both as founders, you, you feel extremely responsible for the company and for the people in the company and for the stakeholders outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it helps towards outside. And also for us to say, look, that's still my, f- we, we like to work with ownership and that people know what they have ownership for mm-hmm. and what they probably also have the final say on. And, and so I think it helps with this response, splitting of responsibilities. Okay. Um, so tell tell us a little bit like how you think the solution that 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 you have of corporate mobility um, is helping out in the whole climate situation problem. So if you can explain a little bit how that contributes. Well, I mean, first of all, what is certainly important to say, it's not the only solution of when it comes to not. climate change. Yeah. But if you look at the emissions being generated mm-hmm. on a global scale, but even if you break it down into the Swiss market, 30% or a third of all emissions come from auto traffic. Mm-hmm. And so I do think like looking at mobility is worth it. And yes. and I really like I keep keep saying that in, in, in such uh, settings, but I think the climate change is, change is the challenge of our generations. Yes. And like you should be smart in where to like where to look at where you have the biggest leverage. So for me, I think mobility, you have just such a big leverage. Um, then if you look at the amount or like what is super, like in the past funding went most into B2C companies. But when you actually look at com- like at commuting and business travel, it's a big, big chunk of, of global travel is somewhat co- connected with work. Mm-hmm. Like either it's, it's a company travel, but it's also going to work, like commuting to work or from work. Yeah. And so um, that's, yeah, basically where we we're like, look, you, we have a huge leverage here. So we don't have to, like as a B2C company, you have to convince each single person to go with your mobility. Yeah. We have like a big task to convince a company, but then it's offered within the company to thousands of employees and mm-hmm. it's subsidi- subsidized. So it's cheaper for the individuals and we can make like with a little bit like it takes longer at the beginning. But then once you're in companies, you, you have such a leverage. Yeah. And so I think that's why we, at the beginning, we were like we thought it's a niche, but actually, it's quite it has quite a big leverage and potential. Um, and that's yeah, that's I hope it answers your question. Sure. But that's how we ended up in this. Okay, and industry. if you can explain a bit more concretely um, what Urban Connect offers to the to the the companies, so in terms of the solution and the platform, mm. um, as well as the different uh, types of uh, vehicle optimization. Yeah, so it's it's. Um, we started off with e-bikes, what I said, but yeah. by now we offer a multimodal platform to companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we have at the heart of our surf- service is is an, a software that we developed mm-hmm. ourselves. It's a it's a front end app towards the users, but also to our mechanic or like operational partners. Right. Um, and then there is a back end towards um, the client company. Mm-hmm. 
And what we offer is not only e-bikes, but like a, a platform of different vehicles that we also provide, like we also put the vehicles then to the company. So if we mm -hmm. have a fleet of e-bikes and e-cars, the client like says how much at what locations, and we actually install the charging infrastructure. We put the vehicles there, so we pre-finance it, we lease it, mm -hmm. like it's a leasing. Okay. Um, we uh, insure it, we brand it, we make the whole communication around the, the launch event. Like we, we plan, like it's a, it's a really oh, it's holistic like a whole solution. A to Z uh, exactly. solution. So, okay. Exactly. But then also, and by now, like in April now, we're launching also public transport. So we have mm -hmm. an integration from the, it's basically, you can buy an SPP ticket. We are launching right now the public transport with the mobility budget. And in summer, there's also a virtual card where you can then basically pay for an Uber or a taxi or a Lime. So any mobility that is around, mm -hmm. you can subsidize as an employer to your employee. And so it's a really holistic solution, yeah. but not just software. It, it also brings the asset and the infrastructure around the mobility that the companies need. Okay. Wow, that's 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 really covering a whole, whole suite of... Uh, options and in terms of like um optimizing the existing fleet so you mentioned that mm -hmm. you are leasing them uh who do you lease them from and how do you try to um, leverage what is already existing yeah the optimization is is another offer it's like we have this classical fleet offer that i was just okay. ex explaining now with micro mobility mm -hmm. and cars and then public transport but we also offer a service before we even put our service there where we analyze the existing fleet of a client um, very often they have very big fleets of, of corporate ca cars, be that pool cars, but also like service cars, for example. And what we offer is um, we put trackers within all the cars. We don't know who is driving. We just know where each car is. And we analyze the fleet for usually three to six months. Mm -hmm. And based on their data, not just some kind of average Swiss right. data, but actually your company fleet is behaving this in this way. And based on that data, we were able in like in the last couple of cases, we were able to reduce the fleet by 30 to 50 percent, which Wonderful. is a massive, yeah. like it's a massive, optimization. yeah, we can, we can reduce the fleet. With that, we can reduce parking. Mm -hmm. We can reduce the fleet cost, like the, the yeah. actual asset costs, but also emissions. And yes. we do that by making it shareable. Mm -hmm. And then also um, with time, we electrify the fleet. We don't always want to electrify immediately if the mm -hmm. fleet is rather new and it is yeah. with um, with petrol, that's fine. And and then when we replace, like when the fleet has to be replaced, we suggest, of course, um, more sustainable vehicles such as e-cars, but then also e-bikes. Mm -hmm. Because I think the number 60% of commutes or like of trips done are below eight kilometers. Mm -hmm. So very often a car trip done can could be done with a bike or a cargo bike. Right. And do you uh, also work with car rental or, or bike rental companies or because you have to brand it, you don't do it? Like no, that? we have our own fleets that we okay. put to clients. But uh, with the virtual cart that we are launching in summer, we will be able or like our users will be able to also pay for shared publicly shared bikes or also mo mobility cars mm -hmm. or other car sharers. Okay. And you mentioned um, collaboration on public transportation as well. So is this in a way like a subsidized offering for the employees? Yes, if they if the employers give them a mobility budget, which is um, basically an, right now, many companies give the com like give the employees right. with their salary some kind of mobility cash component. Like yeah. usually it's like 40 francs. It's usually up to 600 a year because it's uh, tax free. But more and more companies, they say, like, well, if I pay the 40 francs as part of the salary, they can just as well pay a pizza with it. Yeah. Right. So and, and they want to be able to track how employees move. 
And therefore they start to give them a mobility budget, which is again 40 francs in as a as an amount, as a voucher. Mm -hmm. And we then offer them the opportunity to 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 spend it. So mm -hmm. they would load up 40 francs on our back end to the different employees. And the employee then has the choice to spend it on public transport or on a shared cars car on or on a shared offering via the virtual mm -hmm. card. And in that uh, or into parking spots. So you basically you subsidize different modes. Okay. And so when you mentioned that they want to track how the employees are moving, so what exactly are they analyzing and tracking with that information? It depends on the client. Like, on, like first of all, more and more clients uh, in Switzerland, the pressure is not as high as in Germany, but they have to report on the uh, tier three emission, like tier three um, emissions of the mm -hmm. company, which also includes the community of the employees. Okay. So like... In the past, companies had to report on financial data. They now also have to report on um, emission data. Yeah. And like especially in service-driven companies, the employee yeah. mobility is a big drive, like it has a big impact on emissions. And so that's a way of, of measuring how employees move. Um, on the other hand, many clients, they have issues with parking spots. Mm -hmm. So they want to understand, look, the guys who come and really need the parking spot or say they really need the parking spots, yeah. how far... Do they actually have to um, commute home? Um, could would there be a, a mm -hmm. more uh, more sustainable but also more um, user friendly route by maybe public transport plus an e bike for the last mile? I think there is many ways, like many information in that data, where companies then see a potential to optimize either from emission perspective or cost perspective. Wow! And have you been able to also gather a measure like how that has affected employee well-being? So also from the productivity standpoint, um, and you already mentioned the impact it has in terms of uh, the climate. Uh, yeah. yeah, we are like we are measuring that. I wouldn't feel comfortable to make like some like stay like I, I have done econometrics in school, so yeah. I always feel a little bit like. Uh, hesitant to to I can say I can talk about examples. So we okay. have just made a survey at one of our big clients, Lonza in Visp. It's in the in the mountains, and um, they have three thousand users out of five thousand employees. So quite a bit of employees use our service, and we did quite a lot of um, surveys over the last one and a half years or almost two years that we work with them. And for example, one of the one of the numbers that makes us really proud is that sixty eight percent of the employees say say that our offering has changed your mobility behavior in a positive way. Mm. That mean, And then we have split it up. I don't have the numbers in, in my head, but I probably I think something like 30 to 50% is actually, they do commute more sustainable, like less with the car. I think car use, private car usage has dropped by 27% um, from like where they were to mm. where they are now. But then there is also feedback, like it can also behave in or like move, or I say this 68% of, having changed your mobility behavior in a positive way can also be more in the fresh air. Yeah. Or I can leave home later and still get to work in time because yes. I have an e-bike. I don't have to wait for a bus in between two connections. There is many... like No headache to park and, yeah, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. So, but I would like... And we do see like a reduction of emissions mm -hmm. if we compare with them. Like, but it's always tricky to... I, I'm a little bit suspicious with those data that says like before I always traveled like this and now I travel like that because people are not always 100% honest with their answers of course, yeah. but of course if you we have made those surveys and um it is indeed like it it shows that employees commute much more sustainably mm -hmm. and that companies are saving emissions but i think the hard facts is when you look at their existing fleet yeah. and you look at their fleet after we have introduced our service 
And in terms of presence, um, you mentioned Switzerland and Germany. Are there also other countries where you are uh, at the moment? Uh, Liechtenstein. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not really Switzerland, but it's also actually yeah. Switzerland a little bit. Yeah. So we have quite a few clients. Like Hilti is one of our oh, biggest okay. clients, and they're in, in Schaan in Liechtenstein. And in terms of um, behavior of of employees utilizing uh, your service, do you see difference in in that in amongst these three uh, marketplaces? We we're at the very start in Germany and we have like we basically have one big client Roche that we work mm -hmm. in Switzerland at two locations that we also work in Germany with. Um, so the Roche employees behave quite similar yeah. in Germany, like be it in Grenzach or Basel, it's like three kilometers apart. So I think the behavior is pretty similar um, in Liechtenstein. I mean, what we see there is like they haven't they don't have a fantastic public public transport offering they have a bus they don't have a train mm. there's a like Liechtenstein has this very special restriction that only people who were who are from Liechtenstein or who are in the board of a company or in the executive team of a company can live in Liechtenstein so there's ex like an extreme amount of commuters in and in out and in out, morning yeah. and there we see a ex like people want to drive the bike because they're faster than the car if they mm. want to get to Hilti like Shan for example they're faster than standing in the line with the car um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't say there's, we see a lot of difference be in between companies. Like, again, I wouldn't say like this is an empirical insight, but I feel like you can see quite a bit of about, about the corporate culture by the way they, oh, very they behave on our app. Could you, could you give me a, an example of that? <laughs> or like, I mean, it's, it's really, it's interpretation in yes, the end. It's like, so, yeah. but what I think, what we can see is that some clients, like some users, they just never return it dirty. Like there's companies of ours. I think Hilti is a good example. It's mm -hmm. always like they keep that it's a family owned business. I kind of feel mm. that they're like they know one another, to, although it's a big company. They have this feeling of the next user could be my colleague. Therefore, I return it really well. And compared to B2C, all our fleet is, fleet is being treated really well. Like we never have like no one smokes in a car or nobody okay. leaves their McDonald's stuff in the car, like what happens in B2C offerings mm. for cars. But you can still see like the way people maybe come late without really, like they return it a half an hour late, they pay for it, but they don't really think for the next users. And then there are other clients where you really feel like they call you, like they call our hotline. They're like, I'm really sorry. I'm in traffic. I'm half an hour late. And we're like, we have those three hour buffers. So it's no problem, but you can see that they really care about the next users. Mm. Very, um, very interesting uh, insights. Um, so do you think we're driving towards a future where there would be no individual ownership of vehicles, especially, I think, Switzerland? I think especially urban areas, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I do think we are moving away from ownership more to access. Um, well, we're, we're not like... We're not promoting that nobody should have an ownership if somebody like is disabled or right. or for for private reasons really needs a car like they should have a car mm -hmm. but they shouldn't stuck in, be stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. um, so we believe that the future is more like access based but also more multimodal because by being only having access to the different modes, we believe people will do smarter decisions. They will not take the car if it's faster or cheaper with the public transport or with the bike. Yeah. And therefore, we hope that actually less people will be traveling with cars because they will find other ways, other modes of transport that are more sustainable and, and actually have bring them a better user experience mm -hmm. than being stuck in traffic. And the question is really like, I believe this people or like these entities that will offer mobility, 
this access to mobility will be players such as SPB or Uber, but we really believe that those um, platforms could also be within the companies. They have a massive leverage with all their employees, like a company like Roche has over mm -hmm. 10,000 employees in Switzerland alone. Yeah. If they are the orchestrator of this mobility, um, they can be very powerful. And, and um, so we put our, our, like we put our bet on, on this idea. Okay. Um, so in terms of when we talk, when we look at all the companies, right, that are out there, um, many of them are not providing the employee transportation solutions, probably because they don't have the budget for it. And uh, the ones that do, they're often provided probably for their C-11 em employees. Um, so do you think that there is a way that you can also reach out to, to that part of the population? Yes, we believe that, um, especially because we think that companies actually already subsidize mobility quite a bit, mm -hmm. but they don't measure it as much. So a company like Lonza, I mentioned them before, mm -hmm. in, in this, they give free parking space. That's a way of subsidizing private car use mm -hmm. because they they don't have limited space in this, in where they're based. And they decided to give part of that space for free to the employees with the car. This is a way they already are paid. Like they could be using that space for another production facility. Right. Um, many clients or like many companies give them rekashex, for example, like they give them money to access public transport or they give them this like budget every, mm -hmm. every, every month, but just as a cash component. Or they give them company cars, not just to the executive team. There are many, many sales teams, but like even if they work 40, mm -hmm. 50%, they have their own car. Um, and so I think many don't really understand how much they are already spending on mo mobility for their employees. And so, yeah, we, we feel more like you have to, like we have, the companies have to understand how much they're already spending, taking mm -hmm. this full cost approach, not just like, but we are not paying them bikes right now, um, but really understanding how much they're spending already, what they're also missing on in terms of possibilities and saving space, saving cost. And then I think the potential is quite big. All right. And nowadays you work with you know, a number of household names like Google, uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, ETH, Roche, IKEA, etc. Um, but obviously there was once upon a time where you had to you know, start with your first customer. Um, so the first customer, as you explained how it began, but what was the challenge like after that for finding more customers and finding the right clients? I think the challenge, our first client was Google. It was a bit of a challenge to get them because, um, I mean, we, we originally wrote to, I think, hundreds, probably three, four hundreds com companies until Google like was one of them. And they said, yes, we want to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And um, after and then we grew quite a lot with Google and we didn't have the need for another company because, as I said, it was a side project. We didn't have a software. It wasn't it didn't have to scale. Mm -hmm. um, but the moment we then developed the software, we had to go find or like we wanted to go and find more clients. And there, I think our challenge was a little bit that uh, companies would say, well, we are not Google. Like that was a lot of the mm. feedback we got, like nice that Google can afford this or nice that Google um, thinks like this, but we don't think we have to offer bikes uh, to our employees. And I think that was a little bit of a challenge that we started to 
kind of move like move the focus from the clients from this thinking of this being a fringe benefit but really understanding that this Google doesn't that do it as a fringe benefit but they actually the employees save time in between the different campuses yeah. they don't have to offer any parking spots at Europa to their employees there is a lot of cost component yeah. and I think that was like a shift of communication that we had to to do And so when you approached Google, um, you did not have any software then. No. So how did you go about it? Uh, to build the software. Also to, to sell, sell them the solution. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we knew they have bikes in America and they actually didn't even have locks on the bikes at the time yeah. in the States. So we, at the beginning, we didn't have to have a software to sell to them. Mm-hmm. Um, with time, that, like after the moment where they said, like, we are getting so big that it needs a software just to make it more easy to handle. Um, that's when we decided to, to take it serious and, and take on some money and build software. Mm-hmm. What we did as a mistake at the time, and I think that was a big learning for us and um, certainly could help some entrepreneurs out there. Um, what we did is we kind of had one friend that was in software and we asked him to build our app. And we didn't know, or like we weren't into tech enough that we understood that the software developer is not a software developer, right? Yeah. So he was a guy building fantastic backends, but he has never developed a fr- an app. Yeah. And so we promised at the time Google, and we already had another company, Avalok, which is also a software company here in Zurich. As a client, we told them all like 1st of May or I think 4th of May, 2000, I don't know, 18, I think it was, um, our software is ready, our app is ready. And then we let the guy go and told him what we need. And we expected, like, I think we had a meeting end of April where he showed us the app. And so in end of April, we met him and he was like, well, sorry, guys, like the guy that I asked to do the software or like the app, he built a great backend, but he was like, the, the guy that I asked to do the, the app, he lied, there is no app. Mm. And so that was the moment where we were like, mm. <laughs> and then we had to go to both like clients and say like, there's, I mean, we have an app. It, there was an app, but it was yeah. like such a bad, like bad app. I w- I'm not from tech, but I could see right. this is really, really bad. Um, and then what we did, and I think that's really also kind of an entrepreneurial moment mm-hmm. where you like, there was many things in me saying like, let's just drop this company. Like <laughs> this, it's like, I, we didn't know what to do, but then we kind of took a moment to think. We also went to Google and said, look, this is what happened. We're very sorry. Like it's our, navi- like our being na- naive yeah, that yeah. led us there. Like we didn't have bad intent, but like, this is the situation. How do we solve it? We have this and just options. Like you can, we also understand if you say like, we're done here. Yeah. And then actually we, we chose a, a partner at the time. It was like a software development company here in Zurich. We intentionally took Zurich, although it was mm-hmm. expensive, but so that we could in an agile way, um, develop the software like we we would sit with them every week mm-hmm. every three weeks I think we showed the, the development to Google they could give us feedback which was really again good for the development be- because it wasn't like just developing something into the mm-hmm. blue and then it's not what the client wants and um, I think with this process first of all we kept the trust of the client that something is coming and we're not just saying again yeah in five months there will be an app and the client feel- felt very much as part of the product I think they very like they felt it's also their app. Right. Um, and I think that was a, yeah, that was a very, like for the for the family, it wasn't a good time. Like it was this summer. I cannot remember when I look it's at high pictures. Stress. I cannot remember <laughs> this time as a, from a private right. perspective. So we were really like in stress mode for mm. a couple of months. But then when we launched and it worked, it was like, and then we learned so much in that process about how to develop software, mm-hmm. how to communicate about or like how to manage expectations towards the client yes. and all of that. 
um yeah but that's how we got went along <laughs> so uh, would you say that uh the transparency that you showed to your clients also helped to build trust because I feel like a lot of times um, founders can go to, to sell something that is not quite there mm. and could potentially break the trust that they have uh, yeah. with the customer. Look, it's a very fine line for me. I think the trust is something as an individual even more than as a company because mm -hmm. as an early startup founder, it's not the company they trust. It's the, you that they trust. Mm -hmm. And I think... You have to be extremely optimistic and you have to show a vision and you have to win their trust in the same vision without saying, like, you cannot say it's already there mm -hmm. if it's not there. That's, I think that's the line where you shouldn't go. Yes. But you, like, I, I think also if you say, like, if potentially, if everything goes according to plan, then you also lose the, the trust because mm -hmm. then they're like, well, she cannot really do it. So you have to be very confident. But I think it starts with, yourself actually believing mm -hmm. in the vision but then also in your plan and then also just be very um like uh, show show them that you can do it basically show them right? that you can do it but also i think it's very much it's being very disciplined and also like mm. you like you have to yourself then also live up to what you communicate and for me it's very helpful so if i say now in this podcast we have a virtual card in summer like I really want to have the virtual card in summer because I mm -hmm. said it and it's somewhat my own. Um, I feel like it's almost my name to this statement. Right. And if it's, I mean, maybe something goes wrong or we change strategy, but I try to always um, communicate with clients, especially mm -hmm. in a way where I can go have coffee with them anytime and look them in the eyes because otherwise it's not worth, I mean, mm -hmm. having a startup is stressful. And if then you also cannot sleep well because you feel like you're a little bit of a fraud I I, I wouldn't it's, it's I, I upholding it's, your integrity basically yeah, exactly. with, with For, the clients yeah and also I think the big also as a company like employees notice that mm -hmm. like they see I okay I think if they wouldn't I would feel very bad or like it would really not it would drain my energy if I would feel like people listen to me they nod but they don't believe mm. and like even more in the company and the, the bigger you get the more you have to have this integrity And otherwise it's, it wouldn't be for me at least. It would be very tough on me. Yeah. And do you in today's time have a CTO now or do you still outsource it? No, we have everything. Let's put it like that. We moved from this company uh, in Switzerland to a nearshore company in Serbia. Mm -hmm. And um, this became a little bit tricky because of the, like, the, basically there is certain restrictions with overhead costs right. and, and, and we wanted to insource certain guys and, mm -hmm. and this was just, tricky so um we now over the last actually we stopped with this new showing con company in january and now we have everything in-house but not everything in switzerland and we have a cto okay um very nice guy from russia originally and he just relocated to switzerland okay. um, and he worked at get before which is somewhat a global competitor from israel all right so let's also talk about how uh, the pandemic affected you because, you know, people were staying at home and they didn't need um, any mobility solutions at that time. So how did you guys manage that period? Yeah, it was uh, probably the even tougher time than <laughs> when we had an app that always crashed. <laughs> um, so I think what we first, there was like probably a couple of weeks where we kind of froze because we were like, well, no one needs our solution. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. This is not going to be needed in the next month um and so what we like we quickly agreed that this time will be over like we like we assumed like people will want to go back to the office 
Um, but the question was more like, how do we survive this time until people actually go back to the office? And um, we decided not to do Kurzarbeit, like this mm -hmm. time where you just get paid from the, from the government, but stay at home. Also, I feel like this would have, we had way too much talent in the team for that. Like we didn't want people to be at home, although they had such great ideas and such, mm -hmm. such drive. And so we actually decided to do a seed run in this year. I mean, also to, to have a little bit of runway because we didn't know how long this will take. Um, that was one thing. But then also we thought like we we talked very intensively with our clients and said, what do you need when it comes to mobility? And what we learned in the, at the time, we only had e-bikes for mm. companies. And we realized that they would really appreciate to have one platform for everything. So that then in 2020, we developed the e-scooter integration, e-car integration. Um, and this was like... Basically, yeah, that's how we then developed the, the system in a way so that in 2021, in April, we started to launch clients again. Mm -hmm. And it was multimodal clients with cars, with, with scooters. And yeah, we kind of, we always said, and I mean, we're still, sometimes I feel like we're still somewhat in a crisis because you, I feel like every year yeah. something new came. Um, but we always said, like, let's get out of the crisis where we're like, thank God this happened. Not, mm -hmm. not not to the society but like thank god to urban connect we had this like moment where we had to just take we a step back and, and look yeah. at the forest and not just be in the forest and be like okay what should we actually do now that we have this opportunity mm -hmm. where we can breathe um and i i feel like this is we actually succeeded in that i think we're stronger now because of of this moment that we had where we had to take a step back great so you had the seed round in 2020 mm -hmm. uh, with family and friends and uh, then Series A um, in 2022 mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Helvetia Venture Fund and uh, SPS, which is Swim, uh, Swiss Prime Site Solutions, um, totaling now to about uh, 5 million francs raised. Um, so what were the challenges you faced uh, first uh, when you were fundraising during the seed round? Yeah, so we fundraised in 2020, yeah. which was a very difficult year to fundraise, especially if you were selling B2B mobility and nobody was in the office. Mm -hmm. um, so we and, and also I think one of the feedback we always one of the feedbacks we always got from Mises is what that we were not asset light. They always wanted to invest in asset light, so mm -hmm. software only. And we clearly saw that the clients don't want asset light because they want somebody to manage the fleet and somebody to put the fleet there. Mm -hmm. So we knew like we, we can become asset light, but then the sales would drop like it won't work. Um, and and thank God we had loans for the fleets in the past from families and friends mm -hmm. and kind of like smaller strategic partners of Urban Connect. Um, and they could see over the time since 2014, really, how mm -hmm. we just had these recurring cash flows, like the loans were always paid back in time. Every fleet in itself was very profitable. So they understood the business well enough. And they also knew the team well enough that they knew like we will survive this time. And when people go back to the office, this can fly and this works. Mm -hmm. And so these were the fam friends. I mean, it's not my family or something. It's like f more kind of like, yeah, friends, families and fools. Is that what you call yeah. it? And I think that was the biggest obstacle. covid Mm -hmm. People not being interested in the field at the time and then um, being asset heavy when investors really looked into asset light models. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then during the series A round, what were the challenges you faced uh, then? Which was also, I mean, we, we were hitting an economic recession, yeah. the war and all of that yeah. happening last year. So, yeah, apart from that, I think for, for us as founders, what was quite tough in this, that round is with, that we were actually in 2020, it was quiet. There were we didn't have operationally much going on. In 2022, we I think we more than doubled sales. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So actually operationally, the business was running and, and the business was busy mm -hmm. and we did it on the side. I think that was the thing that was sometimes like the most stressful part about it, that I actually felt like we have to make sure the clients are happy, the business is running, yeah. but also we, we are raising cash. So that was, that was um, probably, I mean, and then you always have those things. I, I think every uh, founder thinks like, well, I'm going to raise in three months and then it's never three months, then it's yeah. nine months and you're stressed the whole nine months. So that, of course, like we also, we, ha we took longer until mm -hmm. we actually had like, actually had the signature and, and all of that. It, but I think that's by now when I speak with other founders, it's just a normal thing. You yeah. you plan something and it always goes a little mm -hmm. bit longer and a little bit other than expected. Your clients, um, you know, are your biggest champions. You So how have they influenced your product development as well as uh, new customer acquisition? Yeah, I mean, the Google example is a really good example yeah. when how we developed the software. I think like, first of all, I really think they are our biggest supporters. I think mm -hmm. in the prep call, you asked me about, like, who are your biggest supporters? And I think it's the clients because um, they don't just support us on the sideline. They actually mm -hmm. they use our service. They give us feedback. They told us um, every three weeks how we should develop the app so that it fits better to their corporate needs. And we could replicate that for others. Um, and it continues to be so, not just with Google, with any clients. If they have new ideas, we try to really listen mm -hmm. and we pilot stuff with them. We we have test trial groups within companies that that, that are more like MVP tolerant. Um, so that, that that's certainly very helpful. And then the other thing is, of course, the the recommendation factor. Like it's it's we are very proud that like any new client that we are acquiring, they can basically go to our website and say go through the logos and say like, I want to speak with the mobility manager of Ikea mm -hmm. or I want to speak with the one of Roche and we yeah. can make the connection and feel comfortable that they will actually say good things about us. Not always perfect, of course, but they, yeah, yeah we have built yeah partnerships so that they also with a good consciousness can really mm -hmm. recommend our service. So now, uh, you know, you have a team of, you mentioned 30 people. Um, you have 35,000 plus registered users and approximately a thousand fleet vehicles um, under under your management. Uh, so the future is looking bright. Mm. Uh, what's next for Urban Connect? Um, so the next steps, like we're growing again, mm -hmm. like our goal is again, more than doubling ARR. Mm -hmm. This year we're well on track. So Having more client com company clients is, is the focus right now within Switzerland because the potential is still quite big. Mm -hmm. We are launching now the public transport integration, including this mobility budget. Mm -hmm. um, we are have some exciting partnerships in the oven, but we cannot talk about them now. But I think, I mean, the the stuff that is our on our plate right now makes us all very excited about what the future brings. Yeah. Very cool. And what about you, Judith, as an individual? What is next for you? I think the what my focus is at the moment is trying to find my strength. Like the, I'm doing so many different things, mm -hmm. and I feel like I should focus more and really understand how I can bring value best to the company. Mm -hmm. I know I can do many things, but maybe I shouldn't be doing all yeah. the different things. But really, also try to let go and and give it to people where I feel like they can actually do it much better than I can. Mm -hmm. And by them doing that, I can focus more on other things. So that's um, for me. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing all of this. Um, we would like to also hear from you some recommendations, resources, books, podcasts, whatever, mm -hmm. um, or gadgets uh, that you feel could be 
helpful for our listeners. Yes. Um, so let's start with books. My all-time favorite book as an entrepreneur is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by mm. Ben Horowitz. I don't know if you know it, yes. but I've read it, I think, three times. And each time I'm like, that's perfect for now. And yeah. then that's perfect <laughs> for now. And it's such a good book. Yes. Um, and also so honest. And because I've, I really feel in this LinkedIn world of people always being perfect entrepreneurs, perfect career makers. Mm -hmm. And the reality is never like that for you individually. It's very... Um, soothing to read a book like that yeah. and say like ah, it's actually normal that it's tough um that's one of my yeah it's my all-time favorite and i recently read naval ravikant i don't know if you know him yeah. he didn't write the book like another guy kind of made a collection of his tweets and and um summarized some yes. of his interviews and it was very much around building wealth i don't mm -hmm. agree with him everywhere there but it, the focus is really much how to build wealth and stay happy along the way and i think to stay happy along the way mm. part is really strong and and more more much more important than the wealth part because yes. if you're unhappy and wealthy i don't think you ha or it's not my goal at least yeah. um so that one i really enjoyed and then what i usually like to do is um instead of just watching just a series because i'm tired at night i, I try to Or like I really enjoy watching, for example, Masterclass. Mm. And then I like to like I, uh, we we watched the one about negotiation. I really like to just get inspired, also about something completely different, like just to get yeah. a different perspective. For sure. So maybe that's like on the on the impulse. Otherwise, like I mean, tricks and stuff. I think it's really important that you take care of your health, both yes. on your on your physical health. So like, try to move a lot, sweat mm -hmm. every now and then find a way to compensate the stress, um, but also the mental health. Yeah. I think that's something that should be talked about a bit more in the entrepreneurial uh, sphere, because yeah. I feel like men, yeah. when you seek help or you, when you need a break, it's seen as a weakness. Yeah. It's very much promoted as, a, as like you shouldn't do that. You should yeah. be 24-7 working on your company, but you cannot yeah. do that for, I mean, Elon Musk can do it, but <laughs> I don't think most people can do that over yeah. 10 years without... I think founders yeah. often get sucked into this overdrive that they have to do it and, and create it. And the passion is, is a good thing to have, mm. but not at the expense of your own um, health and well-being, yeah. which, which is oftentimes the case with burnout and, and yeah. stress. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I was on a plane lately and I watched this super pumped about the Uber founder, Travis I don't teach it. They call him in the like the, the Uber fan, yeah. you know. And and he has as a mentor Ariana Havington, and he does a lot of party. And he's like, I think introducing himself and saying like, I'm sorry, I know I have a bad reputation. She's like, No, no, no. It's just your way to compensate. Like she, yeah. she and she's like, I don't know any founder who can be successful without having a way of compensating. And so mm -hmm. she says like, others do like you do drugs, others do do golf or whatever. And I think you really should find your your way of of also having. Like being able to sh shut, shut off work off, where it's not yeah. like you cannot think about work during this time. And in our case, it's very much the kids and, and I do sports, but I think being with the kids really help, helps me also to having this like yeah. just going away from that and then also going to work again with mm -hmm. like with excitement and yeah. looking forward New to it. New energy. Yeah. yeah. One of our team guys, like I think every two years or something, he takes three months off. He's our chief product actually, actually and he just climbed a new mountain in Nepal, like nobody has been up there. Wow. And I know for three weeks, he was just in a completely different world. And he came mm -hmm. back and he's so inspired, yeah. not by reading a book, but just by having his mind shut off. And I think yeah. you have to find find ways. Yeah. And it can be anything. If you like coffee, then do a like coffee course and, and yeah. 
it doesn't really matter what it is, but I think it really helps to have something mm -hmm. on the side as well. Yeah, I feel I feel like people oftentimes undervalue how much rest contributes to productivity mm. and resting and stillness of the mind is contributing to productivity. And as you mentioned, can be in, in different ways. Mm. And not just productivity, also creativity. Yeah. What I realize if I'm only under stress, mm -hmm. I have really bad ideas. Mm. Like I'm like, I'm just Definitely. functioning. And then sometimes like I go on a holiday, I'm like, why, why do I have like, I have such good ideas. And it's just because the mind is a little bit more chilled. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So let's get to the fun last yeah. segment of our episode, which is the rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you ready for it? I am. <laughs> All right. So who's uh, someone that inspires you? My grandma inspires me a lot. She she grew up in in Germany during the war times, yeah. and she kind of fought her ways through through her life. She lost her husband early, and she had a sick child as a as a young mother. Mm -hmm. Um, and she stayed, she, she's sometimes a little bit stubborn and stuff, but I think what I really admire about her is like, she kept a very positive approach mm -hmm. to life. And, um, yeah, I think she, she enjoyed her life, although she, there was a lot of ad adversity, I think is mm -hmm. what you call it. Yeah. Mm. Wonderful. On your LinkedIn, you mentioned you love doing movie nights with your family. So what's your favorite movie? I studied acting. This is a very hard question. Oh, of course. <laughs> Um, with the kids, I love the, all the Pixar movies. Like yeah. they're really good. I mean, they're like kids don't get the jokes always. They're yes. really, really good for me. I, I, I like, I love to watch the Sing movies. I don't know if you know them. Um, sing movies. No, no, it's no. like Sing number one and number two. Oh, it's okay. like it's an audition. Uh, sorry, I should just answer in one sentence. But I recommend. No, no, <laughs> I really like like Pixar movies. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. What's harder, being a mom or being a startup founder? I feel there's more at stake as a mom, mm. but it it's not harder. I, I, it's a difficult question, yeah. but I like, yeah, if the company fails, nobody dies. And if, <laughs> if I'm not a good mom, there's more at stake. I yeah. Think. How do you travel to work? By bike. Is it to your company? Yeah, it's a company e-bike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. the fastest. If I don't have it, I'm... I'm much lower and much less motivated to get to work. No, it's really like I go everywhere yeah. with the bike. I love it. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Judith, uh, for sharing all these insights and all the information. It was wonderful speaking with you and hope you also enjoyed talking. I really did. Thank you, Anzu. Yeah. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>